we introduce 80 celebrities, 84 celebrities, and we always highlight one celebrity because we can't possibly highlight all your wonderful careers, and there's so many wonderful careers. Tonight, we thought we'd highlight this gentleman. He's the only male artist to record in seven decades. He starred in over 60 motion pictures. When Billboard first came out in 1941, the number one single at that time was I'll Never Smile Again by this artist. He's a multi-talented singer, actor, producer, director, all those things. Most important of all, he's raised over $1 billion for charities. There's a saying that the talent you have is God's gift to you, but what you do with that talent is your gift to God. This man sang his songs and he built temples and he's not Jewish. He sang his songs and he built Protestant orphanages and he's not Protestant. He sang his songs and African-American children went to college and he's certainly not African-American. If that statement is true, that the talent you have is God's gift to you, but what you do with that talent is your gift to God. I personally know of no one who has done more for his God than this man, our host, Francis Albert Sinatra. Ladies and gentlemen. That's right. That's right. Stone Bohemians back one more time. Back one more time. Can you believe it? Back one more time with the Mez Bill Mesnick. This is Rich Buckland. What can I tell you, gang? You know, we, you just uh, can't keep us down. You can't keep us down. I mean, we 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 party when we want to party. We do not follow any any guidelines. We don't follow any schedule. We 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 get down when it's time to get down. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those times to get down because we have. Uh, we have a king in our, in, in our midst we'd like to discuss, and I'm not talking about uh, Elvis. I'm talking about the incomparable voice himself. And I'm not talking about Bing Crosby. When the blue of the night meets the gold of the day. I'm talking about the man himself. The man Francis himself. Francis Albert. Francis Albert Sinatra. And we have, we are going to call this episode The Lion in Winter, because mm. the great Mez has informed us that uh, we, will be, uh, we will be cherishing the later Frank. We're not going to deal with the early incarnation and the, the career boom and uh, the Bobby Soxers. We're going to talk about the elder statesman, the man who came to terms with his... Uh, with his career in various ways and uh, who I feel should be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's the impetus for this this episode is for you to make your case. I'm going to make my case. I'm going to make my case in a way that uh, that uh, only a great prosecutor can make in the annals of rock and roll. That's the kind of case I make when I tell you that as a loving Bruce Springsteen fan, I can't listen to Western stars, but everyone I know that loves Bruce loves Western stars. And now they're making some movie with him performing the whole thing from beginning to end. So, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, have you heard Western stars? I have not. Everyone is different about those that they love. And uh, I guess to some... Western Stars is what Watertown was 
for some Frank Sinatra supporters. Low, lower key, lower energy. Um, Watertown, but we'll get to good, Watertown. Good segue, good segue, I'm, but we're not quite there yet. No, but I'm moving and grooving. I'm moving and grooving, yeah. and we're working our yeah, way yeah. into the we're working our way into the portal here. And uh, why don't Pretty you? Pretty good with uh, as little sleep as you've had. With given the fact that yes, gang, I've been up all night with sick animals and a wife that can't sleep because of the sick animals, and I'm just running on pure adrenaline, no coffee, no caffeine, drug free. Can you imagine if you instilled a little uh, caffeine in, uh, or stimulant? Sounds It sounds pretty good. Sounds promising. Sounds promising. Yeah. So, Bill, why don't you, in your with your expertise and your thoughts on the subject, since I first posted on our Dig This uh, Facebook page my uh, contention that Mr. Sinatra belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Okay, well, you you came to me with um, a, a strong desire to want to do a, a, an episode about Francis Albert. And um, listen, I love Frank Sinatra, as, as I told you. Um, I, I'm a frequent uh, listener to the Capitol years. Um, the ring-a-ding-ding, Frank. Um, love that. I have the Columbia set, which is prodigious to say the least. Um, you know, I've watched several of the movies over the years. You know, he's always been there. Uh, uh, I revere and honor Frank Sinatra, but I've never thought of him as rock and roll. Now, I, you know, so that's sort of the, how the conversation began. And I'm certainly up for anything you want to toss around. But the thing that scared me uh, when talking about, you know, approaching... Frank Sinatra, the career of Frank Sinatra, so vast and encompasses so many um, twists and turns and ups and downs and, you know, peaks and valleys that um, I just thought it was too much for one episode. So I wanted to narrow it down to a bite that we could handle that I thought. And, um, and so we came up with this idea of the so-called retirement period that begins with basically begins with Watertown and um, I thought okay this is something I can I can uh, maybe put my mind around and try to get a, a theme a story as some way of expressing my um, interest and my love and also my uh, caveats. So, um, does that does that satisfy? Yeah, I'm, but I think that we have to we have to dictate terms here because we have to really put into perspective when the actual retirement fulfilled itself. There was really no true retirement. I no, mean, but he announced. His retirement. It's like great fighters do, and I think he got the idea from great fighters after performing at the Garden in a uh, televised concert, Madison Square Garden televised concert titled "The Main Event" in a in what looked like a boxing ring without the ropes. I think that his his intention was to take that lead from fighters who say, "I'm out of here." But you never believe that they're actually out of there. 
No, but you know, when you consider that uh, Watertown uh, sold 30,000 copies and only reached a chart position of 101, I think. Uh, In March said, of 1970. Right. He okay. said, like, maybe he said to himself, uh, you know, what's, why am I knocking my head against the wall? But we look at whom he chose to produce this particular recording and who wrote the songs. And this was a complete deviation from what he was accustomed to that might have um, elicited his response of maybe I'm just not, it's Brian Wilson's, maybe I wasn't made for these times. But he hired on Bob Gaudio of the Four mm -hmm. Seasons. Yep. And this is and a- And Jake Holmes. Right. And Jake Holmes, these are, this is a these are, this is dramatic. It's a dramatic change. And what you hear, I, I don't know if you, getting into the album itself at this moment, I, I, I don't think is, is required. What I would like to do is backtrack for a moment and read the very post that uh, I placed on the dig on the dig this page. Go right ahead. Firstly, when you say you never thought of Frank Sinatra as rock and roll. We have a number of performers inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that one would never have considered rock and roll. Is Nina Simone rock and roll? Is Bill Withers actually rock and roll? What does that term actually mean? Well, well, that it's it, right. It's uh, it's uh, it's quite wide, isn't it? It's it it, it is a it is a landscape, it is a horizon, it is something that we seem to validate in the beginning with the yearnings of Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Bo Diddley. Uh, you can make the case that that uh, Fats Domino was, was, was more New Orleans blues than anything that could be considered rock and roll jerry Lee oh, rock and roll is is a is a mixture anyway it's, it's a, a gumbo, right. right it's bastardized to begin with yeah. um but some would say that it's a rhythm and blues and country sort of you know mixed together for but the most part there's all these other influences as well which opens another door and we'll get to that at the end of the program but which which is which is haunted me for a period of time because of the uh there seems to be a very, there's a concerted effort to keep artists pigeonholed. And I understand that the Hall of Fame, and I use the Hall of Fame as import only because of the reach that it has, the corporate reach that it has, with its program being televised yearly on HBO. Um, I don't take it seriously as a monitor of the actual uh, of the actual treasured events that took place when Stevie Van Zant is given the privilege of now doing this new bit of the t of the greatest singles of all time, I think everybody's yeah. going to have different opinions. Yeah. Meanwhile, I mean, uh, there's a lot of frustration within the uh, artist community. I remember reading a, a rant by Steve Miller saying that. Uh, they made him buy tickets for his family. And he was quite offended. He, yeah. was, he was quite offended. He's not the first one to speak out, but he certainly made a decision to get in front of the microphones and cameras intentionally 
with the idea of pontificating on this because he was so offended. And he yeah. pretty much felt that the entire thing was was a corporate uh, was a corporate joke. They get him up there, and it's for their edification, for the hall's benefit, for everything to uh, feed through this entity called the hall. And I guess the same could be said for the Oscars in a way, or for any awards programming. Um, you have to follow. You follow your your demographic. You follow all of these clues, marketing clues, as to who your audience is to try to give them what they want. Well, here's here's what I think. Sinatra belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame possibly more than most of those inducted. His swinging genius, rebellion, cosmic phrasing, desire, political incorrectness, sexual, sensual manner, and dislike of the very genre itself makes him as much a king as the king himself. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I, I, I buy all of that. I think it's, it's your redefinition of, uh, you know, what rock and roll means. I think it's my defining what the culture represents. Mm-hmm. And I think that the culture of rock and roll has been uh, usurped and eclipsed in many different manners in order to satisfy uh, a particular audience over the years with this Hall of Fame. But when you get to that, when you get to that extension, you could say, uh, you know, Hunter Thompson or uh, Rip Torn or, you know, Picasso, they're all rock and roll. But they're not they're not songwriters. They're poets and right. they're essayists and they're novelists and you can make But that's case. what I'm saying. Your your um your um descriptive words bring that to my mind. Folk artists have been accepted within the hall culture, have they not? Uh yeah. Why would you think that folk artists are given the rock and roll pass. But well, those affiliated I would, I would, with jazz, those affiliated, and here comes the four-letter word that nobody wants okay. to talk about. Okay. Those yeah. affiliated with jazz are not. Okay, I guess that is the um, <laughs> the segregation line. Very well could be. Still in existence for an artist. Is Louis is Louis Armstrong in the Rock and Roll Hall? No, of Fame? Louis Armstrong's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Is Miles Davis in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? No. Well, they should be then. But if we're take, if we're going to follow this line of thought, then you open the door, and I think this is where the conversations get edgy behind closed doors of people who may have suggested what I'm suggesting. It gets edgy because it opens the door to the potential of people uh, parading for artists that might be their favorites that do not fit the genre conclusively and make it difficult to take seriously. Now, jazz artists are very easy not to take seriously because the entire art form has been denigrated since its, uh, its, its inception. 
and the punk rock version of that that ESP Disc engaged in at times has been deemed unlistenable by most. <laughs> yeah. Ornette Coleman, Sun Ra. This is Albert Eiler. Uh, Albert Eiler. These are punk rock versions of jazz. Right. So yeah, I'll buy that. Here we have this whole spirited musical community, and everything is is still, except when it comes to a handful, dealing in separation of power here. So is Nina Simone prompted to be inducted due to her rock and roll soul or because of what she represents to the culture as a black woman coming up during this period, this protest period in particular? Right, and, and there's, there's some gospel artists, are there not, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Well, I think that the that the staple singers are in there, but uh, you know, yeah, Ray Charles and and Aretha and. But you know, but but then, when you listen to Ray Charles, do you put on, do you put on the gospel? Well, a gospel infuses all of Ray Charles. Yes, but but <laughs> you're going to have those who suggest that, as with Sam Cooke. When he left the Soul Stirrers, it was an abomination, and therefore not to be taken seriously because he was looking for a career with a wider audience. So yes, it's all right. the best recordings Elvis Presley ever made are his gospel recordings, hands down. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, some say that. I guess, yeah. But I don't believe. And, and some of the best recordings Bob Dylan has ever made are gospel recordings. Hold on there. <laughs> and some of the best recordings, some of the best recordings that Van Morrison has ever made are simply, truly gospel-oriented recordings. Right. So we go back to the original argument that it is so adulterated and so mixed that what does rock and roll really mean? Okay. Let's take then. Let us take this up, because we really can't go any further until we define and clarify this, can we? Well, not in terms of uh, not in terms of your uh, your nomination, I guess. Well, or in terms of the multiple other nominations that I would have down the line, that yes. I, that I'll get to at the end of, of 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 this conversation because of the influence and because of what I feel is intense bias. Once again, within community, uh, a a community that sets a rock and roll standard. So well, we, maybe the maybe the name will be changed. Well, that would be interesting because I think that would probably be the most, uh, the most certain way to guarantee that you're able to cover a variety of artists who have delivered to the same uh, spiritual place, which we... Like American music. Well, then we're thing. getting into another... We're getting into another... Yeah. American music, we, we've called it popular music. Mm -hmm. But I can make the... Once you go there, then you got to start making the cases for others. Now, you'll never be able... No one will ever be able to make the case for Al Jolson because the door is shut. But as we, as we did... Uh, with our prior podcasts, our most popular, most listened to 
podcast. Uh, there's a lot of um, love for Jolson out there. There's and a great certainly when you talk about jazz, pop, blues, you know, he did it all. Yes, he did, and he entered genres of phrasing that no one had dared to enter before. Uh, so, so why not Jolson in the hall? Because of why, as a blackface. Because then you have to start dealing with the race issue, and the race issue is the last thing that anyone wants to deal with. It's the very last thing anybody wants to deal with. Because as we talked about in that episode, the cultural appropriation is part of the rock and roll uh, tradition. Right, but then the case has to be made, and then in the era of the alleged woke uh, movement, we, we you're going to get the pushback, particularly from people who feel enlightened, that what Jolson did was unforgivable. Regardless of his intent, the times, the culture, the minstrel mentality, and uh, the, the entire burlesque notion that was prominent throughout the country, there's not going to be a forgiveness for, for that. I, I, can, I can totally agree with that. But at the same time, I would say, well, maybe the whole thing has to be scrapped because you're, we're walking on eggshells here. Now we're talking. Trying to fig, figure out now we're talking. who's in, who's out, you know, what does it mean, you know, all that. Now we're talking. Exactly. Now we're talking. But if we get to... If we get to the elements, even my cat has something to say on this particular <laughs> subject. The cat has been hearing me uh, pontificate on uh, Sinatra for so long that even she's got something to say. In fact, she sings Strangers in the Night better than any feline I have ever heard. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Sinatra, so let's not go too far afield. Let's go back. Let's get back on track here with, with Francis Albert. Something in the way she moves Attracts me like no other lover Something in the way that she woos me Don't want to leave her now Better believe than how Somewhere in her smile she knows I don't need no other lover Something in her style that shows me Don't want to leave her now Better believe and how You're asking me Will my love grow Well I don't know No I don't know Stick around Jack, it might show I don't know 
No, I don't know. You know, I it makes me feel love for for this man, you know, because he was such a loving son. And uh he really he agonized over his father's death and it made him you know, I'm all these kind of these these th- these forces gathering around him at the same time, the death of his father, the 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 failure of Watertown. I think uh, he just was exhausted. You know, it's 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 interesting talking about the loving Sinatra because a couple of weeks ago on Real Time with Bill Maher, the panel is discussing the passing of Michael Jackson. And of Mm. course, that leads to the discussion of do you listen to Michael Jackson's records anymore? Right, right. The majority of the panel said, of course, I listen to Michael Jackson's records because you have to separate the art from the man. And Mm. that's a very difficult premise for some people. It's very difficult depending upon your life experience. Um, If you have been a victim of, of, of something as tormenting as that kind of abuse, I don't know that the answer is is con- the continuance of listening to this. Well, the conversation veers into others who are revered but were heinous in their lives. And this one panelist, I believe it was Adam Gopnik, a, a writer, brings up Sinatra. Oh, wow. That's the first name that pops out of his mouth after Michael Jackson. Well, for Sinatra, oh my God. did some heinous things. I'm mm. thinking to myself, man, we've really gotten off the the cherished course of number one, truth, number two, levels of uh, levels of criminal activity. If you're going to put them in 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 that category, there's some levels that are actual criminal activity and others are just being a bombastic forceful at times son of a bitch who could do some mm-hmm. uh, who could who could say some awful and hurtful things and sinatra's uh propensity for verbal abuse i think was was dramatic but it certainly did not seem to play itself out in anything other than the most sensationalized stories that I remember. Uh, but it was funny hearing that attachment. Uh, it didn't, it did not make any sense whatsoever. Well, that that's a whole, uh, once again, a whole other argument rabbit hole, this idea of, you know, uh, great artists that we shouldn't be listening to because they did bad things um it's it's uh you know you could go on and on but here's what's striking the conversations about michael jackson a cherished member of the rock and roll hall of fame and who's the first name out of this guy's mouth frank sinatra not elvis presley who had who had scores of underage girls and had issues up the wazoo not elvis who was living on a sustained diet of chemicals to keep himself alive. No, we're talking about Frank. 
And it's so why do you think why do you think uh, Frank was the first name out of this guy's mouth? Because I think he made the unconscious connection between the greatness of Michael Jackson as a as a popular culture, popular music artist, and the genuine genius of Frank Sinatra that transcends any label. I see. Okay. All right. So you're 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 saying it's a good thing. Yeah, I'm saying it's a. I'm, I'm not saying it's a good thing that he vilified him. <laughs> I'm saying it's a. It's an interesting thing that his first connection is Frank Sinatra. Well, it's true that both were at the very pinnacle of their uh, their game for a while. Um, so yes, I, I can I can see that connection. And I'm also going to contend that just as Tony Bennett at 91 years of age gets out there, and we saw him three years ago in a theater. Uh, a small theater that seats about 1,200 people. And at his age, he puts down the microphone and does an acapella, Fly Me to the Moon. And you have to think to yourself that there are certain individuals who are blessed above and beyond. The last Sinatra performance was at a benefit in Palm Springs, California. And he sings six songs and regardless regardless of time and age it's Frank Sinatra oh shut up I've got the world on a string sitting on that rainbow I've got the string around my What a world, what a life, I'm in love i got a song I sing, I can make the rain go Anytime I move my fingers Lucky me, can't you see I'm in love Life is a wonderful thing Long as I hang on to the string be a silly so-and-so If I should ever let it go Got the world on a string Sitting on a rainbow Got the string around my finger What a world, what a life I am in love It's a marvelous thing Long as I hold on to the string Be a silly so-and-so If I should ever let it go I got the world on a string Sitting on that rainbow Got the string around my finger What a world there ain't no other way of life Hey, now I'm, I'm in love No, he doesn't I don't think he ever had that desire to enshrine himself autobiographically Others have, have done that 
uh, ad nauseum, and his the, the, the newest member of that club is a gentleman who was his personal manager at the in the final years, and uh, he he writes a memoir of his later final years with Frank, which happens to be a very nice look at uh, at those later years, going into Frank's bipolar issues and his depression. Uh, when the uh, when the forgetfulness becomes prominent, it's a uh, it's a it's a very loving it's a very loving book. So no, Frank never had the desire to be uh, for him to uh, to enshrine himself. It's been it was done so much by others for someone whose career appeared to be disappearing. It's also one of the greatest comebacks in the history of show business. So, so before we get too far afield, let's. There were two albums, in particular, that you and I were um, talking about. One, Watertown, and the other was Trilogy. Um, and they're kind of a uh, an interesting bookend situation for that middle to late, middle late period before, as you said, all the bipolar and the forgetfulness and everything. Um, so let's track, if you would, analyze for me your feeling about um, those two records. I think that Frank, for a period of time, was very influenced by Jimmy Webb. I think he <laughs> looked over the annals of popular music. He was never a fan of quote-unquote rock and roll. He was a fan of blues. He was a fan of jazz. He was a fan of country music. He considered John Denver he collaborated with quite a bit, and he considered George Jones to be one of the greatest vocalists that ever lived. He, I'll agree with that. He understood the nature of the gift that one is giving when they're making music, and he did not put it into categories. We're the ones who categorize. He never categorized. What's interesting? You just said that he didn't like, he didn't care for rock and roll. No, he didn't. He never cared. He he would. He had a history of making debasing comments about rock and roll, much not unlike Steve Allen mocking it on his show when he reads the words to Gene Vincent's "Bebopalula," yeah. or <laughs> what he what he what he did to Elvis Presley by putting him next to the hound dog with a hat. And Elvis Bebop. Sure, because when you put when you put Bebabalula up against uh, Cole Porter, you know it's a, it's a hard hard comparison. It, it, but to to not be able to make the separation of powers that the teenagers were at that moment commanding the airwaves, I also didn't think I, I think didn't sit very well with him. Well, so we should maybe respect Frank's witches if he didn't like rock and roll. He wouldn't want to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think that Frank would find it an abomination. And you have a lot yeah. of rock and rollers who say, how many don't show up? How yeah. many over the course of the last year have not shown up? Members of Radiohead haven't shown up. Mark Knopfler would not accept his award for Dire Straits. These are... So these, maybe the whole thing will just collapse. Because, well... Not enough people are going to say no because they need it to further and and verify the careers they're still trying to have because everyone is still on the road 
into their 80s, you never get Everybody a, wants a memorial. Everybody, <laughs> everybody wants to know that they can still make a living. I mean, they look, want a good, they want a good, uh, you know, uh, crypt. Look, if you can, if Lou Christie can still go out there and sing Two Faces Have I, 150 nights a year, something was established in the 50s that not only did not die, but remained with audiences that have forgotten so much else, but remember in their soul what it felt like to hear Gene Chandler sing Duke of Earl when they were sitting in their Oldsmobile. Yeah. Maybe well that's... So, so, so let's go back to Watertown and Trilogy. Uh, no, Jimmy Webb, okay. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I know every time I mention something, I, I know the potential for your digression is um, is monumental, and I love it. But um, talk about I like the Jimmy Webb, uh, you know, illusion. So talk about how these influenced his choices. Okay, here's the first. Mo here, here's the most important thing about Watertown, and about it. What came prior? September of My Years is the first concept album. Frank Sinatra invented the concept album. I totally agree with that. Didn't um, What was the album that um, uh, One for My Baby and One More for the Road was on? I think that was on uh, Only the Lonely. Yeah, I mean, I think they were concept albums in the 50s, like uh, Come Fly With Me and... Um, and uh, I don't know if it's only the lonely, but it might be. It's the one where he's on a dark street at night yeah, on the cover. Uh, yeah, well, there, he's a dark street, but the, the the one that's most prominent is where he's his face is painted as the clown. And that's oh, yes. Only, right. the, only yes. the lonely, and that's the one yes. that, as a kid, that haunted me. The image of Sinatra under the lamppost was something I felt I had seen before. Maybe Matt Monroe did it. Or, you know, but it's something I felt like, but I'd never seen or heard someone go through a series of songs on Only the Lonely that dealt with the despair, the dominating despair of loving another human being. Right. Yes. And this haunted and affected and influenced the rest of my existence and still influences because of the honesty, because of the nature of these songs, the type of which will never be written again. Then in 68, he, we're, dealing with, we're dealing with the older Frank. And mm -hmm. all of us are getting older. And here comes yeah. September of my years. Each and every song crafted vocally, instrumentally, with this information of what it's like to no longer be young and its manifestations. And we left out his biggest hit because it was his biggest hit and should immerse him in every Hall of Fame. It was a very good year. Mm. I don't think that there is a greater popular music record that you could say, it's not rock and roll. What is it? I know it's it's uh, it's brilliant and it's haunting, and uh, so 
why did Watertown, a concept album, uh, tank so badly? Because now we have a new age. Now it's 1970. And it centers on a guy from Watertown, New York. Now, if you have followed Frank's career and his motion pictures, you're not going to have to reach that far to understand him playing this character. He's played oh, Watertown. Nothing much happening down on Maine. Except a little rain Old water town Everyone knows The perfect crime Killing time Can never be a lonely place when there's a shelter of familiar faces. Who can say it's not that way? Old water town. Excitement to be found hanging around. We can't hit a home run every time. No, it's not going to happen. But you know, it's interesting. Did you? You? I'm sure you know this because you know all about your subject but i found it interesting that this was the one and only time he did not record live with an orchestra the only album ever voiced over pre-recorded orchestral tracks yeah and he and i get that's i may be part of the disconnection that and also you know the 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 album was packaged differently too you're not familiar. You're not used to seeing. Tell me. You're not used to seeing a Sinatra album with a picture of a of a small town uh, on the on the cover. You're used to a different identification. And yeah, you're used to seeing a picture of him. You're used to seeing a picture of Frank, and this is about. He's trying to let you know this is about something bigger than me. This is about yeah. something bigger than me. In his estimation, it's bigger than him. And not only is the does he think the album and the concept is bigger than him, but he thinks it's perfectly aligned to the times that we're living in. The alienation that so many feel in that age. Remember how alienated we were? Yep. 
I mean, there is an alienation in this recording that is simply stunning. It's quiet, it's desperate, and it reminds me of first hearing it and recognizing it felt like those of us who felt we weren't a part of anything because we were all ripped apart by war and choices in music and having to deal with our parents of the World War II generation who had rightfully so a whole other agenda for us. Some of us accepted that agenda. Some of us did not accept that agenda. But Watertown, I think, was a crucial moment of Frank's understanding that he wasn't with the talent he was given be able to break the barrier of the of the pop music currency that was happening and the culture. I think that's all well said and right on. It is a, here's an interesting uh, thing that you can speak to. So there was a track added in this 1994 CD uh, re-release, the 11th track, Lady Day. Um, why... Why was this postscript added? This I'm not familiar with. Oh, well, here it says, um, Lady Day, the epilogue. Uh, I saw a woman as someone who had, saw the woman, I guess the wife character, uh, who as someone who had talent. She wanted to be an artist or a singer. She, he was a hometown person. His whole orientation was family and business. He was the kind of guy who really lived in Watertown. She was more restless a more contemporary woman. She wanted to do other things. She wasn't liberated enough to tell him and she didn't think he'd understand. The postscript talked about whether or not she got it and was it worth it. And it's called Lady Day. So from what you're depicting regarding this bonus track, this song, it it brings to mind the notion as to why this was not another reason this is not a successful album Frank is talking about adult ideas here he's talking about adult repercussions things that occur yes. from the experiences of living we were co we were totally unprepared to understand anything of that nature unless it was poeticized in a Dylan-esque Cone-esque Webb-esque manner our understandings were were corralled with the poetry of the moment. We came to understand it as we came to understand a, a, a Neil Young lyric. We didn't have to necessarily produce an entire wealth of living to understand expecting to fly. Right. But when you listen to Frank, he's talking to you so plainly, so simply about emotions that are so dedicated to the experience of living, we didn't have that yet. And so he wasn't talking to us, those of us who weren't willing to listen and try to understand. He wasn't talking to the, his, his audience because his audience wanted something different. Right, so he was caught between generations. He was caught between generations. Right. Hence the special where he gets up there with the fifth dimension in a Nehru suit. Right. 
and right. well, felt, all those guys, all those guys were struggling with staying relevant. No, well, of course, you know it's the old, uh, you know, Mister Saturday Night when Billy Crystal shows the pictures on the wall of the different incarnations he made to fit the era, um, including. And he him. was only fifty-five. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is young, right? Right. But isn't this that is something? Isn't that something? Isn't that something to determine at that particular age, at that time? in our history, and our culture, that that was really old. Yeah, well, it was like the uh, generational uh, uh, beginning of Sunset. and um, But at the same time, culturally, I mean, it, it, they coincided. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was, it's, it, look at what happened, and I, I have to make, I have to make the, you have to, put everything in context as to who becomes legendary and how they become legendary. When you, when you take a look at the very short entertainment life of Elvis Presley, when his stock ran out, he found Las Vegas. Frank always had Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. So he never had to really search for that place where he'd be able to land on his feet after all was said and done. But Presley's left in Las Vegas in a dark room with drugs and doesn't go out during the day, and he's left with all these good old boys that he talks to day in and day out. And it's a damning, it's a damning life. And I put the two. Yeah, and it was a, it was a, it was a short retirement because he came back with old blue eyes at his back five years later, and that was a hit. Because he went, he reverted to the old Frank. Yeah. With his face on the cover, with the blue eyes shining, and with the recognition that this man, the older he gets, like fine wine, the better he's becoming. And that's where that light came on, once again, salvaging a career that once again looked doomed by the Beatles. How many, right. how many careers seemed to have been... Uh, stifled, if not erased, when the Beatles entered the picture. Frank had to fight that fight, too. And what song did he select of the Beatles to sing that he does an admirable job of beyond anyone I've ever heard sing it? Right, and he uh, didn't he claim that something was uh, one of the greatest love songs ever written? Ever written, yep. That is, uh, that is a kudos to George Harrison. And it's also a kudos to someone who claims he doesn't appreciate rock and roll or what can come from that well. He understood damn well. But culturally, he was always the rebellious saloon singer that could not identify with the type of, of, uh, of methods utilized to catch your ear. The Jerry Lee methods, the Elvis methods, although he appreciated Presley much more than he appreciated anyone else. He liked him, and he felt that he had a great deal of, uh, of, of possibility when they performed together on his show. And they did the and, duet of Love Me Tender and Witchcraft. Well, the man still had more hits in him as we, as we skip to 1980 and the release of the triple album trilogy past, present, and future. One of his biggest hits, New York, New York, comes out of that album. Absolutely. Um, so 
although it, uh, they only won the Grammy for Best Liner Notes. But let's talk uh, as our final um, uh, section on on this massive and uh, unwieldy uh, undertaking trilogy. When's the first time you sat down and listened to all three albums? Only when uh, when this assignment came out. Okay, so this was something that you were on this this passed you by in the history of Sinatraism. Totally, totally, totally passed me by. Um, yeah. and, like I said, the only Sinatra that I was interested in prior to. You know, I mean, he's always been in my consciousness, but I, but the only uh, section of his career that I warmed up to unequivocally was uh, the Capitol recordings and all those jaunty um, Billy May uh, arrangements. But now, now, and they they bring Billy May back for the first album, The Past, and that's the stuff, of course, that. I think everybody likes the best, but um, give me me your thesis on the future. Here's what happens. Here's Sinatra once again attempting to make a statement. It's been six years since he's made an album. So he hasn't made an album since 1974. It's 1980, and he decides that the first thing he's going to do is the most ambitious thing that he's ever done to be released by a record company. Yeah. So you've got these three recordings, which of course, yes, include New York, New York. Now here's where it gets, here's where it gets interesting. Disc one is called The Past. Right. It's arranged by Billy May, as you say. Here's the tracks. I'm like, I'll just give you the songwriters. Song, this song is you, Jerome Kern. But not for me, Gershwin. I had the craziest dream, Mac Gordon. It had to be you, Isham Jones. Let's face the music and dance, Irving Berlin. Street of Dreams, Sam Lewis. My shining hour, Harold Arlen. All of you, Cole Porter. More than you know, Billy Rose. They all laughed, Gershwin. Then he moves on to the present. You take the, you, you, you take that piece of vinyl off. And you put on the next piece of vinyl. And by the way, I have it on CD. I have three copies on vinyl. I have <laughs> four copies on cassette that I used to give away as gifts because I had purchased them uh, at, at a wholesale. So I'll show you how well this sold. I purchased them wholesale <laughs> for like $2.50 a piece. I used to give them as a freebie. You were giving them. <laughs> I was giving them away. I mean, because I, with a little note written by me that this is not to be taken lightly. Yeah, one of one of my many. Well, uh, knowing you, nothing is taken. Nothing is. Thank you so much. So we got this too. We got the present now. This is Don Costa. Now we've got the Don Costa, except he chooses Nelson Riddle to orchestrate something, which was a reunion because they had a falling out. They had a they had a falling out, and Frank always contended any any anyone artistically he had a falling out with was always over artistic reasons. It was never anything personal. He was friends with everyone until the end, as only Sinatra could be and call you a bum. Yeah. You know. So 
now, now we're dealing with Frank's idea of the present. The songs, You and Me, We Wanted It All. A, a very good song by Carol Bear and uh, Peter Allen. Just the Way You Are, Billy fucking Joel. Yes. Something, George Harrison, MacArthur Park, Jimmy Webb. New right. York, these New are the York. people that he's, these are the songwriters that he's giving the nod. The nod in the present. Yes. Theme from New York, Fred Ebb. Summer Me, Winter Me, Alan and Marilyn Bergman, who had their moment in the songwriting sun with Michael Legrand. Song Sung Blue, Neil Diamond. For the Good Times, Chris Christopherson. Incidentally, in my estimation, in his prime, one of the greatest songwriters who ever lived. Yeah, no, he's definitely up there, yep. Track nine is Love Me Tender. <laughs> it's Love Me Tender, written by Vera Matson. This is Elvis still articulating his appreciation of Elvis Presley. And he ends the, he ends the, the present with That's What God Looks Like to Me. A fascinating little tune written by Lois Irwin and Lano Kuhn. Yeah. That's Frank's identity in 1980 in the present. Yes. Now explain the future to me. The future is Gordon Jenkins. Now, if you... It's, uh, like, a, it's like an opera. It is, it is very much like an opera. With uh, soprano solos by Diana Lee, narration by Jerry Whitman. Uh, it's Frank's effort in my estimation, to create something that is going to be considered contemporary, but contemporary in a state that he can live that he can live with. There are elements to me of nostalgia, science fiction, uh, literary, not enough Frank. Li right, literary design. It's it's a very literate record. When you listen to, but you have you can't self-conscious self. Well, for those whose idea of narration is all compressed into themselves, yes. I'm there not. Are two there are two lines that I transcribed from there that that I that struck me and that I I like quite a lot. One is, and I think this is sort of a clue to the what he was thinking. Uh, Quite a different song must be sung when the singer is no longer young. And I think that uh, he was exploring that all through this decade. And then the one that I like the best at the end, he says, when that cat with the scythe starts tugging at my sleeve, I'll be singing as I leave. It's pretty fucking cool. I like that. It is. I mean, I mean, what you know? How many people are able to articulate their desire to, to be there until the final bell tolls? Right. He's anticipating his demise. He's that. Yeah, and he's anticipating whichever comes first: his artistic demise or his, uh, or, or his his existence as a as a breathing human being. Um, so in 1980, he was 65. He was 65 years old. 
So what you got here is you got these tracks that 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 give you soprano solos, Diana Lee, and narrations. Track two is called World War None. I, I still haven't figured this this fucking thing out. <laughs> Three is called The Future with a solo by Beverly Jenkins. It runs about four minutes long, and it's pretty much unlistenable, especially when it runs into The Future Continued. I've been there. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I can only imagine that he let Gordon Jenkins just run away with himself, and he didn't know what else to do for the third album. we got to do three three discs. So we got the past, we got the present. How do I know what the future is going to be? Because Frank, of all people, of all people, is not going to try to dictate what's coming next. He was just trying to stay with with the current tide. So yes, it is it is ridiculous to think that it's his vision. And I believe you're absolutely correct. I believe it was placed in the hands of Jenkins, and I believe it was ultimately uh, misguided. With if you take that third disc out of it and 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 just call it the first duet then you get the past and you take the present that should have been good enough i think it it would have been yeah i think it would have been more than good enough but i've really never heard anyone actually be able to make the case for the third being anything more than than uh uniquely interesting at times and it's hard to listen all the way through it's hard to listen to it all the way through and there are times that i've bailed there are times I've forced myself, and there are times where it just would run, and I forget that possibly because it just became part of my being, having it on in the background and wanting to get accustomed to it. I tried desperately to understand it because I thought it was because <laughs> I, I thought it was important as I thought so many things that other people do not consider important to be important. Like Wild Man Fisher. Like Wild Man Fisher or Arnold <laughs> Ziffel. You know, I'm still I'm still obsessed with Arnold the Pig from Green Acres. <laughs> yeah. I, I still, think a lot of people are. Yeah. I, I still consider that one of the great political statements of television of all time. And I, it's, <laughs> it's still, I still go back to it. Um, so, yeah, the things that, as my wife tells me, the things that I find interesting just baffle her, just completely baffle her. Well, but and thank God that you do, and thank God that you archive it, and thank God that you are, uh, you you walk like a giant among us. And so, in closing, let's say that uh, you know Frank says it best when that cat with the scythe starts sl- tugging at my sleeve, I'll be singing when I leave, and uh, you'll be you'll be explaining, and I will explain. For this ending, what I alluded to earlier, for the ending of the program, which is, if we're going to make the case for Frank, if I am going to make, I will will not, uh, (laughs) I'm not going, I will not impose this on you or anyone else. If I am going to make the case for Frank Sinatra being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, my next case has to be George Jones. Nice. Those rockabilly records into some of the most prolific songs ever sung demand 
uh, a conversation. And maybe we will have that conversation. Maybe we'll move on to who the hell knows. But all I know is we did an hour, two minutes today. On the, well done. Well done, my friend. Well the, done. The chairman. And we should be proud. And uh, I love you, Mez. And we are gonna, we're going to be back soon. The splendid Bohemians love you. Thank you so much for tuning in. We shall see you soon. Everybody out there, be well. Hide from the lights on the village green. When I was 17 When I was 21 It was a very good was a very good year for city girls who lived up the stair with all that perfumed hair and it came undone when I was 21 It was a very good year It was a very good year For blue-blooded girls of independent means We'd ride in limousines There Chauffeurs would drive when I was 35. But now. The days are short I'm in the autumn of the year And now I think of my life As vintage wine from fine old kegs From the brim to the dregs It poured sweet and clear It was a very good year 